Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. There were once two great peach companies in Fresno, Garawan Farming and Wawona Packing, both third-generation family businesses that employed thousands of seasonal workers. Then a New York-slash-San Mateo private equity firm got involved. They engineered a merger of the two companies and loaded the combined entity with debt. Can you guess what happened? We'll run through the details of the bankruptcy. But first, that storm. If you have a story to share... Email us, forum at kqed.org. We'll take stock of the weekend's wild weather. That's all coming up next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Well, we were told to expect a windy, wet storm, and that is exactly what we got. While the rain was intense at times, it was the wind that did the damage. Some Bay Area mountaintops clocked close to 100-mile-per-hour winds, and many places experienced gusts in the 50-plus range. Hundreds of thousands of people lost power. But this was also a storm that you could feel with your own body, too. I was out running during one of the lulls, and it felt like striding in slow motion into the headwinds. If you've got a story about the storm, you can give us a call, 866-733-6786, or you can email forum at kqed.org. To help us recap, we're joined by KQED climate reporter Ezra David Romero. Welcome, Ezra. Hey, thanks for having me. And we actually have a caller. We have Eric in Inverness. Welcome to the show, Eric. Hey, I can hear you. Um... Eric, can you, uh, so you had damage to your house, I saw on Instagram. Can you tell us, just kind of, give us the setup. You're, you know it's going to be a really wet and windy day. You're sitting in your house, and what starts to happen? Well, <clears throat> we had, you know, we're no strangers to wind. We live right on the coast, and it's windy all the time, and trees come down all the time. But um, this gust was something different. Um, we were sitting in the living room and heard the trees wailing around, and suddenly it just started to get really intense and more and more and more. And we looked at each other and 
looked out the window and watched the 60-foot cypress tree fall <laughs> onto our house. Oh, my God. <laughs> so suddenly, everybody's screaming, everybody yelling. I mean, we were so lucky. Like we, um, That's the thing that I'm most just blown away by. But, you know, another feet, another couple of feet in a different direction, and we'd be having a very different conversation. Oh, my God. What did it, what did it sound like? Did, did you hear, like, like a, a crack? Like, yeah, like a bomb going off. I mean, just like... And then... And then waves. And then it's just like... And then, of course, my screaming wife and my screaming son. Wow. Oh I'm, laugh, I'm laughing about it now, but I'm, I'm looking out the window of my house and the, the branches are pressed right up against the wall. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a miracle that, we, that, we're, that we're talking to you here. Yeah. I mean, had you experienced anything close to this in previous storms? Never anything like this. This was the, the, the howling of the wind was louder than anything that I've ever heard. Yeah. And now I know that that's not a good sound to hear. Yeah. Um, last thing before we let you go, because I'm sure there's a lot of cleanup and other things. Do you know how long it's going to be before you get kind of things cleaned up and a tree taken away and all that? Yeah, there's a 60-foot tree in my yard, and it's smashed up against the house. So we've got um, our local tree guy coming here today, Pacific Tree Works. They're awesome. Yeah. Um, and, you know, this is the time of the year where they have a lot of work to do. So Yeah. yeah. Hey, um, Eric, Which, thanks. Yeah. Really appreciate it. Glad you're okay. Glad you're safe. It seems like that is really <laughs> wasn't the worst case scenario, but it was. That's got to be one of the most terrifying moments you can have. Yeah, I've never, I've never had anything like this. But uh, glad to be talking to you. Yes, yes, same. Thanks a lot, um, Ezra. I mean, people were experiencing things like this just all over the region. Like, how widespread was the the damage? I mean, it ranged all the way from like Monterey County up to Sonoma, all across the Bay Area. My job yesterday was to like bring all the reporter stuff and make a digital art- article out of it. And I was getting reports of like trees falling on houses, you know, an un- unhoused person like putting their tent back together. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was on Twitter and like I saw so many pictures of houses on trees. It reminded me a couple of years ago in Sacramento when we had a big storm and it seemed like every other house or every few houses had a tree on it. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Do we know how many people... I mean, I lost power at my house yesterday. Do we know how many people lost power? I think the number I heard last night was around 400,000. There's still about 250,000 people without power right now in the Bay Area. And then if you include Monterey and Santa Cruz counties, it goes to more than 300,000 people still without power this morning. Mm. You know, I was also uh, I was looking at some of the National Weather Service um, flood gauges, and it seemed like... Maybe this is like a little bit of a silver lining, but it seemed like things got close to flood stage, but not seriously into that uh, situation. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I was on a call yesterday with Daniel Swain. He's at UCLA. He's a climate scientist. And he was saying the reason we didn't get as much rain is that the center of the storm didn't reach land in a fast way into the Bay Area. And that's Mm -hmm. why like Southern California is getting so much water. So that's why we had these sort of what seemed like isolated showers that were still pretty intense for us here, but it didn't bring as much water as it is to su- as it is possibly to Southern California. But there w- it was pretty windy. Yeah. Oh, man, it was windy. And some of those, you know, when you see the wind maps and you see particularly on the mountaintops, things reaching, you know, 80, 90, um, those, are, those are not numbers we normally see. Yeah. I think I heard that in Marin and some of the mountaintops, they had more than 100 degrees. 100 uh, mile per hour winds and then 
down down the bay mm-hmm. on the south bay that was even stronger or around there i mean even in my own apartment in san francisco it was so windy that like my pictures were rattling on the walls and my house was moving back and forth a little bit and i hadn't experienced that even in the city before yeah our poor little dog man it was just so so freaked out um let's bring in um uh dimmy in san jose welcome um, thank you for taking my call. I live in Felton, um, in the Santa Cruz Mountains, and one year ago, January 10th, 2023, the first tree fell on my house mm. during this atmospheric river storm. Um, and now this year, um, Santa Cruz County has actually taken a really long time to kind of give us the permit to start our construction. Mm. So luckily... N- um, our home hasn't even started rebuilding. Um, and so, but, but in this wait period, it's taken us a whole year to just get, yeah. you know, get us a permit to finally go. But um, a second tree has fallen on my no. house in the yeah. same exact spot. In the same exact spot. So, in, in hindsight, I guess, you know, I would yeah. be in a completely different situation if my house was completely rebuilt. Oh. And it fell. So I guess there are silver linings, but yeah, this, I've been living in Felton since 2018 and this has been really challenging for us. Yeah, no kidding. I know. Does it make you, I mean, you know, we, we oftentimes talk about people, you know, who might be living right along the coast and dealing with sea level rise or people living on that, you know, um, urban wildlife boundary where they have fire risk and they start to reconsider, you know, maybe I don't want to live in this place. Do you still, do you have that? Or is it the the draw of those trees um, when they're standing is enough to keep you there? Right. Well, my personal life is a little bit different. I am now a mother of an 18 month old. Mm. And so my whole per- perception, perception of life is completely different. So now we want to rebuild and, um, mm. and, sell and we do want to move a little bit closer to family which is san jose so Mm -hmm. um yeah i I, I, we love mountains and i love everything that that has to do with the san cruz community um but it um it's going to be a bittersweet when we have to leave eventually yeah um, this is no fun yeah well you know the trees and the mountains they'll still be there even if you're not um you can go visit yeah all right. Uh, hey, thanks so much, uh, Demi. Really appreciate um, you sharing your story. And I'm so sorry about the house. I mean, that is, God, I'm glad no one was hurt. Um, man, Ezra, it's a, it is one of these interesting things where when, when you have a storm that's this widespread, there's so much damage and so many, um, uh, so many people are affected by it. Talk to me a little bit about that Santa Cruz area, right? Because um, Highway 1 was shut again, right? Yeah, one of our reporters talked to a supervisor uh, about how Highway 1 was closed in Santa Cruz. Um, there, The rainfall tolls were supposed to be up to like five inches mm. for that area as well. Um, even more than places like Santa Cruz, San, I mean, San Jose were supposed to be affected. Highway 1 was also closed in San Mateo, San Mateo mm. around Pescadero, mm. um, partly because of waves. Um, one of the supervisors there was saying the waves are about 25 feet tall um, and there were like power outages and power lines in the roads and things like that. So, I mean, the impacts were sort of widespread in this atmospheric river that was making its way across California. Yeah. Um, Let's um, go to another call here, Daniel in Berkeley. Welcome, Daniel. Hi, thanks so much for taking my call. 
Um, so basically, my situation is that my kid was was at an outdoor um, sort of camping experience in Tilden Park for the whole weekend. Um, getting there at fri- on Friday at twelve, and then coming back yesterday. And then, you know, as the storm was coming, I got got very worried, especially mm. with the winds. Yeah. Um, I ultimately didn't go. I didn't. I ultimately didn't go and, and like check out the situation and pick him up um, because a lot of parents said like, oh, that particular part of Tilden probably is fine. But it just, I'd like to hear your thoughts about like how do we as parents mm. sort of make these decisions about like with such localized weather. Yeah, man, that is a tough. That's a tough, I have to say, I might have. I'm not sure. I might have been. I would have been able to leave my kid up in up until. What do you What do you think, Edger? Like best way of dealing or finding good information. We had another uh, commenter uh, who thought that they had received the message that this weekend storms were going to be. Uh, less severe than last weekend, which I feel like in my world did not feel that way. I feel like I was hearing that this uh, was really going to be um, the the weekend. So um, talk to me a little bit about how people can find the best information, particularly around these kind of very local conditions. Yeah, I mean, places like KQED, we have stories that talk about this. I mean, I know our our team was putting out stories that this was going to be a big storm. Um, also, like, it depends on what's going to happen at your local level. So I would go to your go to the weather service or go mm-hmm. to see what your city is saying. I personally, anytime I hear about an atmospheric river, I cancel my outdoor plans. Mm-hmm. I make sure my car is not under a tree. Like yesterday, I like drove around my neighborhood until I found a spot that was <laughs> under a tree. Yeah. Um, Cause my, I've had, I have had times where like a tree wrench has fallen right next to my car, things like that. So mm-hmm. I would just say if there's an atmospheric river, I would kind of cancel some of those big things because they are, prone to have a lot of damage, whether yeah. it's wind or rain or flooding. I also just want to say, too, um, I, I I, mean, Ezra mentioned him earlier, but Daniel Swain goes by Weather West, does provide like extremely detailed forecasts, including yeah. in this one, talking a lot about how the direction of the storm was going to be very different, kind of largely coming up from the south. And his big warning today is not for us, but for his people in, in Southern California who are going to get dumped on. So if you've got friends and family down there, uh, check in with them, perhaps. Um, thanks so much uh, to our callers and KQED climate reporter, Ezra David Romero. Thanks for joining us, Ezra. Thanks for having me. After a short break, we'll be back to talk about the bankruptcy and liquidation of the nation's largest peach producer, the Fresno area, Prima Wawona. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Prima Wawona, the largest peach and stone fruit company in the world, entered bankruptcy and is set to be liquidated, leaving thousands of workers without a job to return to. Just so happens that this company, which had been stable for a very long time, went wobbly when a private equity firm began to call the shots. What happened? Joining us to help us understand the history and present of the peach business and farming in Fresno, we're joined by Daniel Gligich, who's a senior reporter with the San Joaquin Valley Sun. Welcome, Daniel. Thanks for having me on, Alexis. Sure. We're also joined by Rod James, a reporter covering private equity with the Wall Street Journal. Welcome, Rod. Yeah, thank you. Nice to be here. Uh, Daniel, let's start with you. Give us a little, like, primer on this uh, on this company, like what was the company? What did they do? How did they, you know, get into their current form? Sure. So Prima Malona really, I think the story really goes back to uh, 2017 when the private equity firm Payne Schwartz had acquired Wawona Packing. And Wawona Packing was a major peach producer in the Valley in the Fresno area that was owned by the uh, the Smith Camp family, which is a uh, a major you know player here in mm-hmm. Fresno, mm-hmm. a big agriculture family. And so, Wawona Packing got acquired two years later in 2019. Payne Schwartz had merged Wawona Packing with Garalwin uh, Farming, and that was owned by another major uh, farmer here in town, Dan Garalwin. And he had actually was named CEO of the company. He had um, maintained a 25 percent stake in the company, and he was the uh, Kept on as CEO, but mm-hmm. and and so I should say that company, Prima Bologna, the merged company, had become the largest peach producer in the nation then. Mm-hmm. So, but by December 2020, Payne Schwartz, the investment firm, had uh, forced Garawan out as CEO, and within three years, you know, in, in mm-hmm. about September to December of a uh, 22, two to three years, mm-hmm. they had a. Uh, Pretty much lost all of uh, their value and worth there. Yeah. So we had these two family-owned operations. We had uh, Garawin and we had Wawona, um, run by the Schmidt Camp family. And then Payne Schwartz comes in and uh, rolls him up into one big thing, which is you know a fairly common um, play in the private equity world. I mean, Rod, um, before things started to go south. What what was this company valued at? Like, how were people seeing the value of this, you know, massively merged, uh, you know, peach conglomerate, basically? Yeah, so at the time the business was formed in 2019 via merger, it was valued at $560 million. Mm. Um, and, yeah, when it went bankrupt, it had $679 million in debt. Um, and... Mm. You know, they tried to sell the company uh, in an auction process, and they were unable to get a satisfactory bid that met the uh, the minimum minimum barrier of two hundred and seventy five million. Hmm. I mean, I guess the the obvious question here um, is how did so much value get wiped out in such a small period of time, Rod? Yeah, I mean, this is a lot of different uh, 
you know, different stories and different perspectives on this. I mean, Payne Schwartz focus on bad luck, bad weather, a um, salmonella recall that uh, wasn't directly linked to to any um, Prima Rowana properties, but cost a fair bit of money in earnings, mm -hmm. uh, forest fires. And uh, Dan Garau in, in his um, lawsuit points to, you know, what you'd have to call more sort of pernicious practices. He claimed a breach of fiduciary duty on the part of Payne Schwartz, breach of contract, um, fees, unexplained fees or fees that weren't agreed to associated with, um, with transactions that were executed by Payne Schwartz. Mm-hmm. Big, big um, McKinsey fees from what I was seeing in the coverage, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it should be noted that there was an in internal investigation led by an independent director uh, with a law firm, which looked at the fiduciary duty claims, the contract breach claims, uh, and wasn't able to find any sort of yeah. smoking gun or at least nothing that was sort of legally, had any legal power. Yeah. But that doesn't mean the decisions made by Payne Schwartz were, were good for the company, yeah. even if they weren't technically Just a breach of it. Take a quick step back here. I mean, I think I, I always get a little confused about how leveraged buyouts work because it seems counterintuitive to me. It's something you can do because you literally buy the company with debt that you force the company to take on, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, the company takes takes on the debt and it's secured against the assets of the business. I don't think I mean, force probably isn't quite the right word because the owners of these businesses agree to sell them to to mm -hmm. private equity firms mm -hmm. and they they do understand the playbook but then you know that doesn't mean that things can't go uh, can't right. go very wrong because it, yeah because it does decrease the cash flow of the business right because they have to service the debt and make these interest payments right yeah I mean they take the leverage as we call it the debt on in the anticipation that the changes they make to the business will generate this growth that means they can easily pay off that debt increase the value of the company and sell it in you know mm -hmm. three to five years to another buyer yeah but all this is predicated on, on things going to plan right um daniel can you give us a little more context about the ag industry in fresno um, like this one company at least says they produce a like a multiple of Georgia's total peach production, right? So this is a <clears throat> this is a massive agribusiness. Um, how have have peach businesses performed relative to say you know your almonds, your pistachios, which had been real growth areas for a while, right? Well, yeah, I mean almonds and pistachios are are sure your your cash crop is you know you've sure probably seen the rise of uh, the wonderful company is over the last you know couple of decades here, um, but I mean as far as peaches go, that was it was going totally fine, um, especially for Prima Luona. and I mean they had they were able to merge and they had this, this massive company here and mm -hmm. I mean even up till uh, September twenty two everything was was going great for them and you know we had no reason to believe that you know peach companies in particular would have issues um and i mean even after their bankruptcy i walked into costco and bought some uh, prima Luna peaches so <laughs> they were they were still farming um but within just a three-month period they, they went down to effectively zero so i mean it's to compare you know with uh 
almonds and pistachios, as you mentioned, for example, I don't I don't think um, there was anything here locally that we've seen that would predicate a a disaster for the peach industry. Right. Like that's that's right. That was kind of the question, right? I mean, if they're sort of blaming these other market conditions, like is the whole peach industry in the tank right now or or not? Yeah, I, I don't think so. And, yeah. I, and you know, as Rod mentioned about you know the uh, what Prima Wawona CEO was blaming on the bankruptcy part of that was like the Creek Fire, for example. Um, I mean, I haven't seen any other agriculture companies, other farmers, uh, blame the fire for their downfall. Everyone else yeah. is doing just fine. Yeah, it's so interesting. We're talking about the bankruptcy and liquidation of Primo Wawona, Fresno-based massive stone fruit grower. We're joined by Daniel Gligich, senior reporter at the San Joaquin Valley Sun. We're also joined by Rod James, a reporter covering private equity for the Wall Street Journal. Uh, I want to add in another voice. Antonio de Loera uh, Bruce is the director of communications at the United Farm Workers. Uh, welcome, Antonio. Hey, thanks for having me. So one of the big components of this bankruptcy is just the loss of like many jobs. Um, but what do those jobs kind of look like, right? I mean, there aren't that many full-time, you know, year-round employees, right? There's a lot of like seasonal workers and, and farm workers. Well, it's it's both. So uh, the estimates uh, I've seen are maybe somewhere around 10,000 total impacted workers, a uh, little over 5,000 of which would have been direct hires. Uh, the rest would have been seasonal workers, right? Wow. These are farm labor contractors that are brought in at peak season to to get the harvests done. Uh, so, you know, you think ballpark around 10,000 workers at peak season. Uh, all of those workers have families, right? Uh, children to feed, uh, spouses. Uh, so I think one of the interesting things here is just the way this is really going to ripple across not just the direct hires of this company, but just the kind of the entire farm worker community. I mean, this was a huge player, a huge employer. Um, UFW obviously has a lot of history uh, with the growing part of of the of the company. Um, and it's really sad. I mean, I think uh, from our point of view, uh, this is we care about the workers, right? we We care about uh, the workers and their communities and their families. And I think this is another example of how the kind of financialization of our economy, has really contributed to the hollowing out of rural communities, uh, in this case, rural Latino communities. Uh, and as a labor union, our perspective here is this is exactly the kind of situation in which workers would want a union going to bat for them, negotiating severance pays, making sure that you know they, they would have been getting pensions paid into that they could hold on to even if the company went under. Uh, these are difficult situations. Uh, but in other times when companies where there is a union presence have gone under mm -hmm. in agriculture and in other industries, right? I mean, we can look at, at a lot of, of different industries where unions have been able to extract better deals for workers who are getting laid off. And yeah. Tony, let me ask you about the overall kind of labor situation. You know, I was reading some of the coverage that in uh, some years ago, a series of packing houses closed down, sent unemployment, just like spiraling uh, in that area. But there were some hints in that coverage that maybe this time around there was enough strength in the overall uh, labor market that that wouldn't happen, that there that there wouldn't be this kind of spiral of, of unemployment. Um, are are there other jobs for folks to to take, or like how do you how do you see that playing out? Yeah, I mean it's interesting, right? So one of the things we've heard from 
uh, growers, uh, you know, uh, they go to Congress regularly and complain that there's a labor shortage. And this is their main justification for trying to expand the H-2A program, which we have fundamental concerns about the fact that visas are tied to an employer, that uh, it's it's a very kind of exploitative setup. Uh, but the justification for that is always, well, hey, we, we just can't find workers. You know, we need to bring in more workers from Mexico on these exploitative visas because we can't hire enough folks here locally. Um, we've always kind of disputed that uh, and, and have pointed to the fact that many local workers have been displaced by the exponential growth of the H-2A program. Uh, so now, you know, you have 5,400 at least workers who are unemployed, who are skilled farm workers, who are, you know, this is a, a real, you know, it's unskilled labor, quote unquote, but these are professional folks. These are hard jobs uh, that require a, a lot of of experience. And you've got all these folks, you know, now sitting around, mm -hmm. uh, presumably very capable of working on other farms. Um, and so we'll see what happens there. But our concern, of course, would be that the more desperate farm workers become, the more that can push wages down for other workers, right. the more workers can get pitted against each other. You know, we know that farm workers make poverty wages. So most farm workers are living paycheck to paycheck as it is. And when you add just that desperation of, you know, needing a job fast to feed your kids, frankly, that makes workers more afraid to speak out, uh, to, to demand the kind of working conditions and wages and, and benefits that they really do deserve for the hard work that they're doing. Dan uh, Gligich, with uh, senior reporter with the San Joaquin Valley Sun, what are you hearing from growers on the way that this is going to impact the overall kind of labor market and just kind of the the ecosystem there? You know, I I haven't heard from growers that they're necessarily concerned. I think they'll they'll see a you know maybe a larger hiring pool here mm -hmm. locally to pick from. Of course, we've got all these seasonal workers, uh, as Antonio said, out of out of jobs now. But uh, we we have not heard much concern that you know as far as this from other growers and farmers um, as far as this being a, a real regional issue maybe like mm -hmm. a domino effect something mm -hmm. like that mm -hmm. no no concerns really locally yeah yeah um, Rod before we get into some of the other issues um, Stephen uh, writes in to say one of our listeners you know do the private equity companies take money out for themselves when they purchase or before they sell the company. If so, that doesn't seem right. Let me extend this question just a tiny bit. When one of these deals, these private equity deals goes down, who makes, who takes the money away from that deal? You know what I'm saying? Like, mm -hmm. is it, you know, we've done shows about like dental offices and pediatricians selling and it's like, you know, an older group of doctors will sell to a private equity firm because, you know, even though there's positive cash flow, they'd rather have a chunk now and go retire. Um, is it kind of the same thing here? Like you sell in that way and the original owners make some money, the private equity firm takes some money, like break down that pie for us. Um, yes. Yeah, so you just mean when a company is acquired by a private. Yeah. Equity. Like in this, in this situation specifically, but also, you know, in, in the general case, I suppose. Yeah. So the PE firm will be investing out of a fund, you know, that fund will have money from investors like, you know, public pension plans. It could be your money being used for these deals. Uh, and yeah, they'll they'll buy a majority stake in a business. You may be using up to sort of 60, 70% debt from the bank and, you know, 30% uh, money from that fund, investor money. And yeah, it'll be a good payday for the, the owner. But by and large, what they'll do is 
try and lock the owner in for for the duration of their ownership, say five years, because they want the owner to stick around. They want mm. the owner to sort of have skin in the game, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in terms of the exit, they'll be looking to exit typically in three to five years. That's what they aim for, mm-hmm. to build the company up, get it bigger, and sell it to some group, either a private equity firm that specializes in larger deals mm-hmm. or a, or to a big agribusiness or some sort of corporation or to list it on the stock market. Those are the... Uh, those are the sort of options. Yeah. Dan, do we know where, you know, they borrowed all this money, they, you know, go into this business, they merge these folks. Do we know where the money that Payne Schwartz borrowed, where where it went? Like, what did they spend on uh, if this was all part of the plan? Well, you know, that's a great question because uh, it's, it's not been public information, you know, public knowledge here. But of course, Dan Garawan has filed his lawsuit against mm-hmm. Payne Schwartz, and, and he's here claiming that you know they they drained uh, over twenty four million in cash to use uh, in their deals with uh, McKinsey and Company, the consulting firm, which they've got some ties to. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's also claimed that um, their the Payne Schwartz board members on Prima Bologna were. You know, demanding a ten million dollar payment for McKinsey, even though there wasn't the contract. Of course, this is you know just what Dan Carlman is is claiming here. But I mean, I think people here locally would would put some stock in uh, Carlman's name here because he is such a big figure locally here in town. Yeah. You know, Antonio, um, I know that you all battled Dan Carlman to uh, unionize uh, Carlman, the the company that uh, he ran. Um, is it difficult for you to, to sort of be on the same side as, as him in this particular case, or maybe you're not? <laughs> well, I was going to say, I don't think we're on the same side. I mean, I think uh, there is a there is a great irony here, right, of, of Dan Garawan fought the UFW for almost 20 years. I mean, it was a brutal, brutal fight. And, you know, you go back and look at some of these ALRB uh, rulings, it's clear that Dan Garawan and the company broke California labor law. And these workers were were failed uh, by the company, by the ALRB. Their right to a union was unjustly denied. And that's just really important context for what we're talking about now, which is when workers needed one, they did not have one. And so, yeah, we 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 but we note the irony, right, of the company fought the union for 20 years uh, and then sold out to private equity and the private equity guys ran it into the ground in in five years so for the workers the worker perspective uh the company during the anti-union fight would tell workers you know don't trust the union they're not going to look out for your jobs you know stay loyal to us the the boss and the boss sold out those workers when he sold the company to private equity and now we're living with the consequences We'll be back with more about the bankruptcy and liquidation of Prima Wawona. That was Antonio Deluera Bruce, who is Director of Communications United Farm Workers. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. 
Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the bankruptcy and liquidation of Prima Wawona, who you may not have heard of, but was the largest producer of peaches uh, in the nation, probably the world, uh, based in Fresno and now in some real uh, corporate trouble after uh, purchase and mergers by uh, a, a private equity firm. Um, we're joined by Daniel Gligich, who's senior reporter with the San Joaquin Valley Sun, Rod James, who's a reporter covering private equity with the Wall Street Journal, and Antonio De Luera Bruce, who is director of communications with the United Farm Workers. Um, Daniel, I wanted to, before we turn to some of these like broader issues around private equity, I wanted to like focus in on the land, right? Because this is, I'm, I'm assuming that in the Valley, the idea that a bunch of what they have, like 16,000 acres or something of, of kind of prime land coming on the market is a really big deal. Oh, I mean, it's uh, it's a huge deal. And, and yeah, we, from what the presentation that we saw, um, it was submitted in the bankruptcy court from a, a local realty firm here in Fresno. And they're looking to liquidate, you know, about 13,000 acres of land, which is split up into seven different groups, uh, you know, in Fresno, Tulare County, around, um, and it's not really necessarily like you know, right next to Fresno, right next to the ninety nine. It's just these, this prime farmland that's that's what it's been used for for uh, you know for decades there, and they're valuing it at a uh, three hundred seventy million dollars for for that total uh, for all of you know thirteen thousand acres. So I think you'll definitely have some some farmers looking to snatch up. Uh, some of this land, I don't know if you know they'll want to mm. keep going into the peach industry here. But. Yeah, yeah. Love to hear from uh, listeners too. What are your questions about how private equity buys and invests in agriculture? What are your questions about this Primo Wawona bankruptcy? You can email forum at kqed.org. We'll keep taking those questions there. You can go to our social channels, the Twitter, the Instagram, digital community on Discord, or you can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. Maybe you know the situation out there. Number is 866-733-6786. Um, one of the questions, um, Daniel, is, you know, will this stay as farmland? You know, Amy writes in to say, you know, what will happen with the trees and the land? Will someone buy it and keep the orchard strong? Or does this become, you know, a new uh, tract housing development? That's a great question because I think that's especially for, you you know, people up in the Bay Area, um, more of an urban environment. You can tell that's um, what we're thinking about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And, and in here in Fresno in the Valley, we have seen, you know, uh, tons of tract homes developers, you know, expanding the the sprawl of cities here. But but this land is really it's not centered on, uh, you know, right near cities mm. where or in my opinion, where you would have a, a ton of tract Homes Got being it. built. Yeah. 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 No, that makes sense. That totally. Um, Rod, so let's talk a little bit about the Prima Wawona, like actual situation, like where they are in the bankruptcy process. Um, like what, what happens from here on out? They're going to sell this land. They're going to, who's going to get what? Yeah. So 
we are sort of going in, in the, the liquidation phase. Um, they've made a, a a trust, a liquidation trust, which you know they'll sell the assets bit by bit and try and create this uh, this money. Payne Schwartz has been um, has agreed to put two point two million dollars into this trust. Um, this hasn't actually been approved yet. There's a court hearing scheduled for the 28th of February, I believe, when um, this will mm -hmm. be discussed and in court. Um, but yeah, this is yeah it, the the you know, being able to sell this as a as an entity. That idea is now is now dead. Yeah, I mean, the obvious uh, critique or the obvious. Uh, analysis here that I think a lot of people are making in the ag world is that, you know, this private equity firm, you know, with a office in San Mateo in New York comes into, you know, this ag uh, business and runs it into the ground. I mean, because they didn't understand it or whatever. On the other hand, this company, Payne Schwartz, is has raised an enormous amount of money to uh, invest in a wide variety of food and agriculture businesses. So, do you think that framing of Payne Schwartz specifically as a you know an out of touch private equity firm uh, makes sense, or what do you think? It's always difficult to tell because there's no doubt that groups like Payne Schwartz have benefited from a lot of sort of trends that have favored them among investors. You know, investors have been looking to make investments that they view, view as sort of environmentally friendly or that are pro-sustainability. Mm -hmm. Things like food security, um, like uh, onshoring, so making sure the U.S. can produce food. and you know, All these themes are, are so strong. that If you have a product like Payne Schwartz's, you can see why LPs would be inclined to, to invest in it. And it takes a long time for the performance of private equity firms to become clear. You know, these a single fund has like a 10, 12, or maybe even longer year life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's it's very difficult to say at this point, to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are a lot of a lot of people I've spoken to for these for the story feel that the classic private equity model is not suitable for agriculture. Hmm. The fact that you want to grow this business and sell it in three to five years, just, you know, they say this can't possibly work in a business where there are so many vagaries and there's so many acts of God and so you know, weather and fire and all the rest of it. And um, I think, yeah, they, there's something in that. I mean, even if you, wanted to plant a tree <laughs> it would not not producing a ton of uh fruit you know in uh in five or ten years right i mean it's like a, a classic model of growth right buy more land and plant more trees produce more peaches um it's not like you can even yeah it does feel like there is a temporal mismatch here um hmm. daniel but you know we when we have done shows about other industries and fields where private equity has come to be involved. A lot of people say, you know, we get a lot of callers and we get a lot of people who are upset that it has happened. And yet the owners of those businesses keep selling to the private equity firm. So there must be some pitch, right? That's still appealing to people who are, are in that egg world. Well, I think, uh, you know, the pitches you can make hundreds of millions of dollars here by, by selling out to a, private equity firm. Yeah. Um, 
but of course that comes with its drawbacks of, you know, like in Garalman's example, he has that 25% stake, which is now, you know, worthless in the company with them going bankrupt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if I could, I mean, if I could just jump in here too, yeah. right. I mean, the, the, the workers aren't seeing any of this money, right? Like right. that's our, uh, from the union point of view, that's our frustration. We're encountering this issue actually, uh, there's a mushroom farm in eastern Washington, uh, formerly known as Ostrom, now known as Windmill, where we have been fighting for over two years now to unionize it. Uh, the kind of local owners who we had initially been fighting, uh, we'd basically beaten them. They would came come under uh, a lawsuit from the Washington State Attorney General's office for all sorts of uh, gender discrimination issues and, and a lot of uh, violations of labor law. And they cut their losses. They, they sold the company to... Uh, uh, windmill farms which is a canadian company backed by a canadian private equity firm based in toronto and this is just a harder fight now for the workers right mm. uh if you think about the classic ufw heyday uh right you think about the picket line on the side of the fields with the boss and the owner kind of looking out at his workers kind of almost face to face right uh and now we're in the situation where you know how do a bunch of mushroom pickers in sunnyside washington make their voices heard in a boardroom mm-hmm. in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and now you've, you know, you mentioned San Mateo, New York, the private equity guys here, I'm sure they're going to be sleeping just fine on, you know, very nice beds. They're not going to worry about what they're feeding their kids this week. There are, there are workers in Fresno County, Madera County, who they're, they're worried about how do I fit my kids this week mm-hmm. uh, because of the actions of, of this very small group of extremely wealthy individuals uh, and, and frankly, Dan Garawin included, right? What was in it for him? He got a big payout when he sold the company. His, his workers did not see that payout. His workers haven't even seen the back wages that the ALRB had ordered him to pay during the whole unionization fight. So so I, I think the private equity system uh, is is not helping, but the entire framework of the agricultural economy is mm-hmm. not set up for workers to succeed and for workers mm-hmm. to actually get their share of it. And so whether the boss is a, is a local farmer or a big private equity company based in New York or San Mateo or Toronto, uh, the issue for us is really just the ongoing exploitation of workers. And it's the workers who actually pick the peaches. We've got a Sophia in Alameda who'd like to talk about this as well. Welcome, Sophia. Hi. Um, yes, I'm a native of Fresno, and uh, I also serve on the board of the National Farm Worker Ministry. And we've partnered with Antonio and the UFW for many years um, on their uh, struggle against Growin and also on the mushroom issue in Sunnyside, Washington. Um, but I just really, I worked in Fresno for many, many years in the social service sector, and I'm very concerned about. Um, what uh, the closure is going to do um, in terms of the social services and the larger community and what's going to happen to uh, all these workers who have lost their jobs. And I'm wondering um, what's the best way to support um, the workers and their families um in this time, if anyone has any uh, yeah. questions. Before, before we get to that, Sophia, though, I mean, given that you are an expert on this sort of network and ecosystem supporting farm workers in this place, like, what are the what are the specific things that you're worried about, like the way it could kind of ping pong through the social services? Like it just dumps too many people into, uh, into needing more help and then the social services there aren't able to keep up? 
Uh, yes, that's that's definitely one concern. Um, you know, Fresno County is a is a very poor county in our state, and um, uh, it's under resourced uh, in general in the best of times. And uh, I can just see this having a bunch of cascading impacts um, with the social service department, with the welfare department, with um, CalFresh benefits, with uh, what will happen in the schools, um, a whole range of things. Yeah. Um, Sophia, hey, thank you for uh, highlighting those issues. Let's uh, let's first go to uh, Daniel Gligich, uh, senior reporter with the San Joaquin Valley Sun, and then we'll come to you, Antonio, on this. What are you uh, are you all uh, seeing the impacts of this yet, Daniel, in the social services agencies? Like, are you seeing the smoke there, or has it not fully hit the county services? We haven't seen anything yet here. Um, I, I think you know it will be. Will certainly have an effect, as Sophia pointed out. Fresno County is is not a wealthy area in the slightest, and you know if you go into downtown Fresno, you're going to see it's, it's uh, you know there's a number of people struggling down there. So mm-hmm. I think people heading to Fresno County for help, you know, you might get lines of people now just uh, talking to the board of supervisors, for example, you know, requesting extra help here because mm-hmm. they're you know the workers uh, are really the ones suffering here. Yeah. Uh, Antonio, what do you what do you think? How do you see? Yeah, it? I mean, seen I this before. Yeah, so there's obviously concerns we always have about access to county services like Medi-Cal and CalFresh among Spanish-speaking populations. We know that this was an issue. For example, we were really involved in during the pandemic, right? Make how do you how do you make these farm worker communities be able to actually access their local government structures and get the help that they need? Uh, there's been there are some you know bright spots. Uh, for example, this year. Uh, California became the first uh, state to allow uh, undocumented people to qualify for for medic for, for medical now, right? So that's that'll help more folks get access to healthcare across the board. Uh, we we've heard in the news that EDD is giving a, a grant of around seven million to uh, farmer preserving nonprofit La Cooperativa Campesina to try to get some help to folks. Of course, uh, that is necessary in part because if you're undocumented you don't you don't get unemployment right so so there's there's a couple different uh conversations we could have about how does the social safety net serve or not serve farm workers uh i want to kind of just go one step further though and, and kind of point out of again this is in a way this is another subsidy for agriculture right of the many that our government gives where you've got the public sector really making up for the fact that the industry itself is putting its workers in a bad situation, right? So for example, uh, I mentioned that EDD has uh, announced that it was gonna look at putting in $7 million into grants uh, for, for community organizations that serve farm workers to try to help make up for some of the lost wages here. But the ALRB in 2017 had ordered Garawan to pay 10 million in back wages to its workers that they would have received had uh, the union contract been actually implemented, the union contract that that had been arrived to by mediation that Grauen refused to ever implement. They owed their workers 10 millions in back wages. Um, and also, just know, for the, folks out there who are yeah. wondering about the ALRB as opposed to NLRB, that's the Agricultural Labor Relations Board. That's right. That's right. And of course, we're excluded from the National Labor Relations Act at the national level. So that's why we have the Agricultural Labor Relations Board here in California. But, you know, that money was never paid. And let's face it, it's unlikely that it ever will be paid. But here you've got a situation where, you know, you've got the state of California paying out $7 million to try to help some of these workers in this situation now. 
but that that 10 million dollars that you know morally speaking in our view if nothing else they're still owed by Dan Garawan that would also be a, a very helpful amount of cash for these workers mm-hmm. and their families in this situation and you know what i i guarantee you what private equity paid for the land went back when they bought it would have more than covered that 10 million dollars in back wages that these workers were owed so when uh rod come to you real quick on this you know uh listener richard writes are not the peach orchard lands being farmed during the bankruptcy so in the long run if there are 20 separate parcels being tended instead of one huge holding what difference would it make workers will always be needed and as to back pay owed wages have a priority in bankruptcy distributions um, I mean, I'm no expert in bankruptcy, but you know, from what I know about this, it's you know these secured creditors, banks who've lent against actual physical assets, mm-hmm. and then a long list of unsecured creditors who you know are, are first in line here. Um, I don't, you know, I I haven't lived in America that long, so I'm not an expert in American <laughs> bankruptcy proceedings, but um, yeah, I. I don't believe that there's any sort of priority given to workers in this in this yeah. particular process. Yeah. Um, Daniel Gligich, what are you uh, looking out for over the next, you know, as we kind of go through the final uh, liquidation proceedings here? Uh, so what are you looking for over the next couple of months? I think, uh, you know, what I'm personally curious is uh, who will be purchasing the 13,000 acres and what mm-hmm. price it actually goes for, you know, does... Uh, does Dan Garawan try to, you know, try to reclaim sort of his his peach empire here? Does does another big family uh, in in town make their move, or or even I think a name should be mentioned is of Stuart Resnick down in you know the Los Angeles area who owns the mm-hmm. wonderful company. Um, I, I believe he's you know if, if one of if not the biggest farmer in the country, and he's you know, maybe he wants to, I'll be very curious because I'm sure he'll be looking at this land um, as a possibility to grow more pistachios. Yeah. Right. I mean, that land, uh, for those who aren't familiar with the rest of, you know, one of the uh, largest landowners in California, you know, 150,000 plus acres of, of land, uh, largely in uh, ag areas doing tree nuts. Um, hey, we've been talking about the bankruptcy and liquidation of Primo Wawona, Fresno-based stone fruit grower. We've been joined by Daniel Gligich, senior reporter at the San Joaquin Valley Sun. Thank you so much, Daniel. Thanks so much, Alexis. Been joined by Rod James, uh, reporter covering private equity with the Wall Street Journal. Thank you so much, Rod. Thank you. And Antonio De Luera Bress, who is director of communications with the United Farm Workers. Thanks, Antonio. Thanks. The bosses may change, but the workers have... We'll have to fight nonetheless. (laughs) Uh, Thanks so much. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.